You're listening to the Dungeons, Dragons, and Psychology Podcast. I'm Nate Pohl. I am a longtime gaming friend of Rob's. In fact, I just realized as we were starting this podcast that we have now been gaming as of this summer for 20 years together. I work in the theater and have a kind of a large background in storytelling in many different forms. Hi there. My name is Joseph Henry. I have been gaming for some 20 years, 10 of which with these, uh, and I am very excited to deliver some hot takes uh, to what will undoubtedly be a contentious episode. So, contentious <laughs> episode incoming, uh, Cyclothid. What we're talking about today is core assumptions of role-playing games and whether or not you should embrace or ignore them. Um, so I, I guess first we'll just talk about what are core assumptions of role-playing games? What sort of things would you consider to be a core assumption? And then uh, after we kind of lay those on the table, we can discuss which of those things we should embrace or ignore or just kind throw of uh, uh, throw down gloves and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> so I, first, first, I think most obvious uh, one is, is I think the stat generation method we've had whole episodes about that on the show um and a lot of almost all um games come with uh written descriptions of how stats should be generated for that setting for that edition um for example we were just looking through the 3.5 uh dnd players handbook and it was for, uh drop lowest um which we used to play with quite a bit um we moved on to other methods in that session or in that edition uh that we liked more but that would be the core assumption um if you were playing with the core assumptions that is how you would roll your character stats for that game um what other assumptions do we have out there uh well i i think there's any number of assumptions uh i think some of the most common ones are um in terms of character creation, uh, maybe wealth of character at the beginning of the game uh-huh. um, gives you somewhere to grow to. Uh, the party size. Party size, for uh, sure. Oh, party size is huge. Some of them have, I think, either written or sometimes un- unwritten assumptions of party composition, even. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good take. Well, yeah. I mean, just, just in terms of, I think, a lot of times the assumption is that you shouldn't have maybe a party of all wizards. <laughs> when we get to the disagreement part, I'm going to say, I think that's wrong. I think you can do that. But I think right. frequently uh, the book's assumption is that you won't be doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's, say, like a vampire hunting themed campaign, maybe have a couple of vampire hunters involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I think with, with uh, starting wealth, you could also just say, you know, character wealth by level in general. Um mm-hmm. If if mm-hmm. you're following the official character wealth by level charts and keeping your players in line with that, uh, then you would definitely be uh, adhering to the core assumptions of of the game. Uh, player lethality seems like a big one. Like, what are your expectations for how often somebody will go down? Because uh, those seem to vary widely by gaming group. Well, by gaming group, but also also that's a very good point by. Um, uh, by the core uh, system as written. I mean, for instance, Pathfinder 2nd Edition uh, sort of by default is very very anti-player deck. Yeah. I mean, it is a system designed to give players every chance to try to hold on. Well, 5e as well. I mean, realistically, Agreed, if you're yeah. downed and you take a point of healing, you're, 
and you're back up. As as opposed to, I remember second edition could be extremely, yeah, extremely lethal. One, and I've had uh, some pretty prominent, um, well-known people on this show talking about character uh, death in Five E, and and uh, I believe it was either Monty Cook or Sean K. Reynolds. One of the two mentioned that if you managed to kill a player in fifth edition, uh, you know, make note of it because it does not happen often. Uh, So very different um, assumptions based on the edition on how how lethal the game is yeah mm-hmm. um let's see dice that's one joe you mentioned before dice we started dives. talking yeah. d20s yeah. d10s d6s even coins and and then nate and i were also discussing along um the lines of dice of of how do you treat um mini uh, minimums and maximums like is a natural one an automatic uh, automatic failure mm-hmm. natural 20s and automatic success as most of the systems are written um, that would be an assumption of how the dice operate, I would say. I think I think what a lot of this is kind of getting at, and, and, and maybe one of those sort of absolute core assumptions is most systems will have some sort of challenge rating to try to make it easier for the DM to balance encounters based on the level of the characters. And, and I think what a lot of this feeds into is that if you keep everything right by the core assumptions of the game, that it makes it much easier to give um, accurate challenges uh, based on those core assumptions to the players. That if everybody is at wealth by level, if everybody has the same stat generation method that the uh, book assumes, if if all of these things are true, then a challenge rating of the same level as the party should be an appropriate challenge. Or, or right. in other words, your difficulty scaling remains relevant. Assuming you I follow it, the rules in the book. Okay, so, so I think maybe here's where we're going to uh, venture off of uh, oh. what are the assumptions into whether or not you should mm. listen to them. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so I just a couple more things on my list before we start uh, throwing blows at one another. Uh, so uh, what playable species um, are available? Absolutely. Yep, playable races or species, uh, whether or not the game has an alignment system and oh. how it interacts mm. with play. Um, and of course, party composition is what we had on our list uh, before we start deciding whether or not uh, trying to sway sway the cyclothids out there one way or the other as to whether they should embrace or obliterate uh, the core assumptions of their games. Listen, I'll, I'll grant you this. I think those core assumptions are something that you need to know and be aware of before you decide to break them. I, like, I feel like this is a very pointed um, like granting of uh, an argument, and I'm, I'm curious where this is coming from, Nate. I believe that you were about to disagree with me hard, and in fact, you kind of already threw the gauntlet down with the notion that if you start varying from these, that you break uh, the reference point that is the challenge rating. And I disagree entirely with that. I think the reference point still remains. You just need to know how... Uh, what you are breaking is going to affect the um, relevance of that particular level of challenge. So, for instance, let's say you go with a higher level of uh, stat generation so that people are Mm. more powerful right out the starting gate. Mm. What that means is that you just need to be aware of what that's going to do to the challenge rating needed to create a meaningful encounter. Meaningful encounter is an interesting way of describing that. Well, but isn't isn't that isn't that sort of the core? I mean, that that 
any game is going to need meaningful encounters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially ones that allow specific users, players, to highlight their strengths, like druids and say, like, an animal encounter and so on. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll acknowledge that um, making sure you are catering to the players at your table is very important, but just because your players are 7th level doesn't mean that you need to have 7th uh, challenge rating seven creatures in order to make the encounter meaningful. You can vary off of the number and still have a meaningful encounter. Okay, uh, that, that's fine. I'll, I'll just I'll frame it up for everybody out there uh, grinning with some concern in their hearts. Um, so I believe these fine gentlemen have been ruined by the constant pursuit of dopamine and higher stats because at at this point, and I cannot make this up the the total modifiers we're beginning games with is somewhere in the region of double like like let's say if you take your 13s your 15s and so on if you add up all of your modifiers the standard point by gives you like a plus seven our standard Ooh, so that starting be point the, the, by for is one like stat 14. like it's <laughs> so where we have gone off the rails of anything resembling belts before we get into a Monty Hall kind of all the loot situation. So you know and what I'm going to God s- forbid if settlements actually have some kind of cap on the items that they sell uh, or the things you can craft. Uh, I'm sorry, Nate. See, I believe you were saying something. Uh, well, I just <laughs> say that um, most of the time, I think, if that is the one piece you are changing is the stat generation method to the point where you would have double the modifiers of what the core assumption of the book is, I'm going to suggest that uh, – at first level, it means you're going to add one to the challenge rating of creature you need to give them a good challenge. From two to five, I'd say uh, somewhere between one and two. Mm. From five to ten, you're going to add probably two, maybe three. And ten plus, you're going to probably be adding somewhere between three and six to the challenge rating needed to make a meaningful encounter. I swear that math is not hard. Interesting. Interesting. Um... And in fact, so much of it comes down to... Picking specific monsters that are going to present challenges to your players because it what their abilities are ends up, in my opinion, mattering far more than what number happens to be assigned to that uh, monster. I mean, sure. Uh, if you have, say, like a lich that can cast time stop and go ham in that pause time versus a zombie who has a single action, yeah, there's going to be a significant discrepancy. Well, but the, the yeah, problem yeah, here that, is that, that those extra be- stats, those extra money, the, this extra kind of character build budget translates into a force multiplier on a game that already thrives on stuff like haste. If haste is what's breaking the system for you, I assure you I have many more ways of breaking the system in much worse <laughs> ways. If you think haste is going to break it, oh boy. Is, is that a threat or a love letter, Nate? <laughs> so so let's, let's look at two of them together. So if we look at the stat generation method um, and say party size, at oh. what point then do you think how many fewer players than the core assumption of players – should you have before you say let's increase the stat generation method to compensate for not having enough party size that now i'm i can't meet that core assumption should i make all the other assumptions remain the same ergo all the challenges are going to be far too difficult for me and we will not survive mm-hmm. or do you ignore other core assumptions to then balance the game so i recall a level balancing method from 3.5 which basically involved adding a severity of advantage or disadvantage to an encounter to adjust up 
CR. I believe they refer to it as the encounter level. And the general idea here is that if you're, say, ambushing a vampire in his lair with your vampire slaying gear and your research on him, he's obviously at a pretty severe disadvantage. This would be, say, like a negative one, negative two against the CR of him, right? That is only if you have not, if the dungeon master has not read uh, any of Keith Amon's books and prepared the the dungeon, <laughs> the lair in a way that would actually give disadvantage to the party. Well, and I fully support uh, preserving the legacy of Gygax in his team of horrors and such. Mm. Um, but the the idea that I'm getting at here is that a party of, say, three players in the same game as what would be written for a party of four players will inevitably start to prepare more to compensate for this because they know their meta knowledge tells them they are already up against something else. Now you as a DM can obviously take this a great many different directions, but I would be willing to bet that a group of three seasoned players going into what they know is a four person campaign is going to prep. Well, but I mean, you can, you can make the same, as, the same argument for a group of four seasoned players are going to be more effective in a dungeon than, a group of four non-season effective, but they'll also be much more confident because they certainly will not be worried about the same kind of one player down disadvantage as the first group. See, I, I think I think if you have fewer players, um, that one of the changes that I would frequently make to the stat generation method to try to even things out is not necessarily to increase the maximum amount of the high stats, mm. but to try to find a method to bring the low stats up so that it becomes a more balanced party in terms of covering uh, all of those sort of areas that they don't have a player who takes it as a sort of a niche specialty oh my god that's a genius idea actually hold on what if we just flipped this on its head what if you have four dms playing against one player and he's just like batman what <laughs> like we're talking about course i mean you're definitely going to if you're glorious. if you're batman you definitely have more than normal character wealth by level yeah for clearly. sure you max out his wealth for sure great and now you just get to have entire sessions where he's like I'm Batman. I mean, it doesn't. This is good for this has got to be great for a one shot at least. Wow, I mean, they, they, Marvel does have its own RPGs now, so <laughs> yeah, you could go with many different superheroes. Even though Batman's not Marvel, you could still kind of create your own superhero along that vein and play in that no, no, system. No, hold, hold on, has, has take DC not bothered? Oh, I'm I'm sure they have their everything's how, how got a RPG this? now. To have four DMs against one player as opposed to four players against one. Well, DM. I think is the, that different? I think the problem you'd run into is competing stories do you really need sure. do you really need four sets of omnipotence i think one set of <laughs> omnipotence is enough i think what i'm saying is you might need four sources of omnipotence i need nothing of the sort uh okay so let's look at let's look at um character wealth by level character wealth by level personally uh starting wealth is something yeah i'll i'll tend to somewhat stick to but i usually blow character wealth by level out of the water pretty quickly um and I think the reason is I like games where my players are able to um, have the resources to really do a lot more than just be an adventurer. Uh, I like when they can build their own towns, when they can build their own strongholds, when they have the ability to recruit and build armies and build empires and and have the necessary wealth to really be a force in the world that's not just an individual. I mean, Joe, you, you talk about 
stat generation and wealth as being force multipliers. And I think that's absolutely true. I think the difference comes that the one of maybe maybe this is something to add to the core assumptions of the game that you were going to have a party that goes out and delves dungeons or does specific quests and is very limited in scope. If you want to run a game instead where those players are interacting on a more global scale or literally changing sort of the path of history, then they need force multipliers to be able to accomplish the things that they are trying to accomplish. I, otherwise, I otherwise it's like me trying to affect the course of this country. Like so, I've so, got to vote, but I'm, I don't have the wealth to, to make any meaningful change. I get it. I've heard you raise this kind of, and I, I'm going to try to present this as faithfully as I can, but the, the thing that you find compelling in games is this idea of striving often against all odds to sure. do something heroic, usually against oh, something yeah. that's like titanic and like yeah. inexorable, even right. I mean, I I certainly enjoy those. I don't I don't know that it needs to rise to quite that level every time, but but right. but but like, would, this is like the 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 myth of like a hero succeeding against unbelievable odds. This, this sure, is what you sure. want at the as the payoff of a campaign. Gen- generally speaking, I want something big enough to really give a conclusion to a game like defeating i don't know defeating a vampire doesn't feel like the conclusion of a game certainly not but if it was strawed or if it was a whole kingdom of vampires right like that that seems that seems more of a scale that i am interested in working at and obviously again you don't start there at first level but it seems like that's what you want to build to not cap out at being able to defeat like maybe a few vampires so this is perhaps a heretical opinion and I, i believe it is in this room um when when i look at something like this of like all right so what is more impressive is it your uh you know, Batman, Bruce Wayne, uh, married to Van Helsing, has gone out to go murder a kingdom of vampires with his vast horde of wealth. Uh, is somewhat less impressive than, say, you know, uh, Joe Adventure down the street who just happened across his first magic sword and has a bone to pick with Strahd the lecher down down the way and that's all he knows for now like he doesn't even necessarily have the knowledge to understand what he's grappling sure absolutely and that is a hell of a starting point but you don't want that starting point to also be the ending point. Like, that's pretty fucking boring. There's, sure. there's not a lot of growth there. I will also point out you should absolutely not ha- hand a magic sword to a level one adventure name. I so. disagree. Absolutely disagree. <laughs> it's in far fact, beyond his multi level. In one. fact, <laughs> here, you want a heretical opinion? Mm. I'm going to say ditch the magic sword altogether. I'll give him a fucking artifact. Mm. I mean that is something we have we have notably done played games uh, like our game the lost artifacts of Mithranor, uh, where I don't know at one point how how many artifacts were the was the party rolling around with eventually I don't remember I do remember that we started delving we tried to get to Mithranor, I believe at third level yeah so we were already looking for artifacts by the time we were three oh, well, right. and, and and we I know each member of the party had one of the elf blades mm-hmm. so yeah. major artifacts mm-hmm. um, by oh, yeah. the end we had uh, sphere of annihilation um, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say it was probably close to 10 artifacts in total that the party had at its disposal that sounds about right and but the but the thing about the game is it was never unbalanced ever <laughs> okay all right please Be- because Explain. because 
we spent most of that game mm. knowing that the challenge we were facing was actually the chosen of Loviatar. Okay. So despite all of those things at our disposal, we were still the underdogs. Okay. Like we were vastly outmatched. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in the end of the game, gave their lives because it was the only way to succeed. Like it was still, despite all of their millions of gold of of wealth and numerous artifacts at their disposal, it still required their lives to succeed. Okay. So I I will grant you that in this campaign that you've run, like the artifacts were almost like implicit into the setting. That's fair. Which honestly is, I think, a great example for uh, assumptions of the setting. But I, I would raise the, the argument that the biggest part of this is developing your both your game and your setting with the players to make sure that mm. you know really the kind of level of game that somebody is going for. And, I, and I'll tell you straight out, I find no romanticism in going after a huge foe with a giant amount of stats under my belt and a huge amount of gold in my wallet. I want to be normal and become incredible rather than being incredible because I've been granted an extra plus seven total modifiers or being mythic or being handed. Yeah, but think, think of, think of Hercules, right? Yeah. He was not normal. He was born incredible, but he didn't make a name for himself because of his stats. He made a name for himself by completing his trials. Well, sure. But he also couldn't have done any of his trials if he wasn't Hercules. Exactly. That's my whole point. The party couldn't, complete those amazing trials if they weren't already above normal okay i I suppose you could even extend this to say like sherlock like nobody would read sherlock or any of the like modern derivatives if they were you know if he wasn't normal intelligence genius yeah name me one great hero in a story that doesn't excel beyond the normal core assumption character stats frodo i i disagree his will save was well above anybody else's will save. He has a luck bonus. Yeah, but all the other halflings fell prey to it. His will save, his specific will, his sole ability to withstand the ring outmatched anyone else's. Ergo, he had that plus seven modifier to his will. He took iron will. Great call. (laughs) It had to be more than that. You don't think that the wizard had iron will and a great will save? No, he was He's born like with an angel wizard that would specifically be corrupted. That's the whole point. He had to be a low-level halfling. That was the whole point. All, all, so many Doesn't of those Doesn't make it any less heroic. In fact, oh, I would argue that it makes it more heroic because it is the, what was it? The actions of, the simple actions of people day-to-day, acts of kindness, that keep evil at bay. Ooh, I know I can't get the quote right, but you get the feeling, right? No, I get, I get what you're saying, but... He did have an extraordinary skill, an extraordinary stat. He had a magical or mental resistance that was because who he was that nobody else had. And I, I think you're missing the other half of the story here. Like that, that is one component of the story. But how about the uh, dude who was 120 years old, looked like a normal human, was actually the son of a line of kings that took oh, the kingdom sure. and took uh, uh, raised an army to charge into uh, Mordor to distract Sauron while Frodo actually did what he needed to do. Like right. you're missing, you're missing the other half of this epic story. That's okay. I, I will fully commit to being the antagonistic um, devil's advocate in this case. Aragorn 
is the worst DMPC ever. He took all the glory, and it was a lot. I mean, he I, was a king. Like, I, I, yeah, that's what I'm getting at, man. Like, come on, get back to the hobbits already. Okay, so these are people. Let them roll I, I, some dice. The, the story would be incredibly boring if all you were watching was Frodo walking. Well, yeah, it's a long walk. I'll give you that. That's another excellent argument for the eagles. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't know how uh, not suitable for work I should get on this, but I don't know. Do you remember uh, th- there's a cartoon called Ogla? Oh, yes. I'm uh, familiar. And there is a cartoon strip that is uh, Gandalf and Frodo on the back of an eagle. And they're fl- – uh, or no, sorry, uh, not Frodo. It was uh, Bilbo. Bilbo and Gandalf on the back of an eagle as they flew out the backside of um, the Mines of Mor- – not Moria. No, uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, the uh, the Misty Mountains, the goblins. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and Frodo was literally asking Gandalf, why didn't we just take the eagles from the get-go? And in the next panel, it's an eagle reaching up onto its back and eating a dwarf. And Frodo or, and uh, Bilbo goes, uh, something about uh, it's, uh, let's walk o'clock, uh, get me off of this <laughs> eagle. Okay, so maybe Gandalf needs a few more ranks and handle animal. I'll give you that. Well, that's okay, he's an NPC. That's the whole, the whole point is he has a crazy budget of skill points, right? I think my point in all of this <laughs> that you were talking about a story that has a number of characters mm. that are quite extraordinary, yeah. well above any sort of normal uh, level of power within the world. Okay. And yet, despite that, they are fighting a power that is still greater than they are. And that's mm. all that you really need for a good story. So it has less i think that following the core assumptions is much less important than knowing what they are mm. so that you can generate encounters that are meaningful regardless of what the level of power of the party is i think i can support that particularly from the idea of agreeing on the kind of story you want to tell ahead of time because like really this whole like question of what are the core assumptions of a game system is really kind of glossing over this idea of like rule zero is everyone must have fun. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, we can talk about the core assumptions over like what dice we're going to use and what does setting look like and all this. But at the end of the day, if you don't have people who are, aren't having fun, they're not going to show up for the game. Yeah. Very true. Sure. Very true. Sure. And I think for me, having fun typically means ignoring core assumptions because I already live every day with standard stats i don't i I don't want to play a game where i'm a hero in a world where my stats are still the same as everybody else's Uh, i don't want to be average for the for the listeners i feel it's important to point out that this is a man i've seen run 20 miles at a stretch well okay (laughs) i have low stats too joe come on but uh yeah, I mean, like, as long as this is something that appeals to everybody, obviously you can play any kind of game that you want. But I have some extreme reservations about the, uh, let's say, generous stat generation methods I've seen used in the past. It seems like it diminishes the uh, glory at the end. I think it changes the way that certain abilities function in the system. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But But that's... If you keep the stats low, it just changes which ability shine. Yeah. So it's, I, I think knowing how it's going to impact is way more important than following any particular set of guidelines. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, that that only like falls intuitively until you start looking at like the the odder fringe cases that actually make it easy to notice stuff. Like if you added four wisdom to everybody's stats, mm-hmm. that's a, going to be a very different game than what you're used to. And it's because everybody's going to have better perception and will saves and everything. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. I, I, which means that all of the like nymphs that would tempt you, all of the will saves you'd make against artifacts that'll tempt you to wear rings and such, right? So these may- will all be easier, right? Sure, but maybe what that means is that that could work really well in a game where what you were going to do is throw a lot of temptation at the party or a lot of the need to resist those sorts of things. Because one of the other things that factors in here is, let's say their will is four points higher, mm-hmm. that's going to definitely give them a better odd of success. Mm-hmm. But if you throw a hundred will saves at them, they're still mm-hmm. going to be failures. Oh yeah. Law of averages is a uh, punishing mistress. Right. So making sure you're using the law of averages to your advantage, I think is key mm-hmm. in all of this. On the other hand, I think that rolling a hundred will saves may become tedious at some point. You'll end up with some androids as PCs. Um, I don't know if that's one of the playable species. In our I mean, course, depends on your setting. <laughs> Might want to talk to the DM about that one. I, I think my point just being that if if you you have a story you want to tell that involves, say, a lot of temptation, or it involves, let's say, um, l- let's say you know as part of the campaign you want the players to deal with a city that has been entirely dominated by, oh, I don't know, mind flayers, and so okay. you want them to go up against this stupid challenge, mm-hmm. and you know. I mean, I remember what mind flares look like. They're fucking terrifying. Like four tentacles on your head and your brain's out. Um, so needing needing players who have an increased ability to resist that stun effect from a mental blast, like that is going to make the campaign, not break it. Uh, and it'll certainly reduce the lethality that you're dealing with. Well, it, I th- I would go so far as to say, depending on the exact level and details of the campaign, it might actually give them a chance it lets you tell a story with a lot more danger without automatic tpks i think the the thing that i worry about with this is that uh rob nate i have the greatest respect for your dming and gaming abilities uh but um i would dare say that not everyone has been playing for 20 years with the same group of people and perhaps are not as comfortable adjusting the stats of something on the fly, particularly let's say uh, the save DC of a psionic blast from a illithid. Um, And these are things that are easily uh, forgotten in the uh, thrill of rolling initiative and throwing out your first couple of rounds. It can go bad fast. If somebody is say, is playing that six points higher CR and suddenly throws out a DC 40 will save, you're done. Unless they start fudging rolls and then then the high's gone for everyone. Sure, sure. I I will grant you that, um, what am I trying to say? You need, I I will grant you this. You need to know the rules before you start breaking the rules. I mean, that's that's true of almost every expertise out there. But I would not hesitate knowing the rules to start breaking them. And I don't I think that you get to a point where you know a rule system and I'll say this, if I was going to start playing a rule system that I wasn't familiar with, you better believe probably the first couple of campaigns I'm going to follow the rules until I can figure out what's going on. But once I know what's going on, like I'm not going to keep following the rules if they are getting in the way of the story that I want to tell. At which point you begin advocating for house rules? 
I'm a big fan of house rules. Mm. I'm a okay. huge, huge fan. You want to talk about house rules? My favorite house rule is exploding dice. I, I absolutely detest uh, yeah. one is a Hold failure, well, 20 let's... is a success. I'm going to explain. Yeah, please. please. One is a failure and 20 is a success feels so overly simplistic that it ruins, for me, a sense of immersion. If you have a hundred peasants surrounding a dragon with pitchforks, I don't care how many of them are rolling. What am I trying to say? I, I don't care how many attacks they roll. They are not going to hit one out of 20 times. You are not going to have a hundred peasants attack a dragon and you're going to hit what's that four times, five I mean, times. They'll certainly connect on the dragon. No, no I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. That, that That's a much less well, natural armor. It'll bounce off. Like they'll oh, connect. I, my point being, they're not connecting to the level where they're dealing they're damage. Not doing damage. Okay. Right. Which is where I think the exploding dice comes mm -hmm. in. So if you roll a 20, that is not an automatic hit. What you want to do instead is roll again and keep adding numbers. And if you keep rolling 20s, keep rolling until you get to a number that is actually what that attack is valued at. To me, that is way more the chance of one of those peasants hitting that dragon is way lower than 1 in 20. That's not a 5% chance you in my mind. You want to see two 20s in a row before it'll connect. Sure. Or say that, yeah, the, if the dragon has a 30 AC and the peasant has a plus 0 to, her attack, to their attack, they need, need to roll a 20, a 20 followed by a 10. And that's going to happen far less often than the 5% chance everybody has to get the natural 20. 2.5%. 2.5%. No? Yeah, 2.5. Because yeah. it's 5% yeah. normal. Yes, yes. So I no, just, the normal method would be 5%. If it was an yes. automatic success, it would be 5%. Right. Yes. And yeah. then in the exploding method, if you're hitting a DC of 30 without Correct. any other bonuses, two and a half. Right. I mm -hmm. got you. Yeah. So to me, that is much more interesting. And I'll acknowledge it requires a little more die rolling and a little bit more math. But it's not that much more. Well, And, and, and it's much more interesting. It's much more engaging. So I, I will say that there is something to be said for adding this kind of loot box element to your roll. Where, like, if you roll, you have a new thing to open. You have another roll that could have another box sure, in it. Sure, absolutely. And Why I, not? I get that. Because the, there is something thrill. I will say, I have never seen more howling at the table than when the third D20 lands. Yeah. That's Excuse what I'm me. saying. The third 20 lands. Oh, sure. Right. Everyone is howling for blood because uh -huh. that lich is going down and we all know it. Satisfying. I'll give you uh -huh. this. But all the other times, particularly when explodes down, these can be somewhat... Oh, catastrophic. Absolutely. Uh, catastrophic is an understatement for something. I sure. remember some pretty uh, fantastical curses. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but isn't but that more realistic, too? If you right. think of the same sure. peasant attacking a dragon... Doesn't it make sense that instead of just missing, one out of those hundred peasants would swing so wildly they stab themselves in the foot well, or, or trip or over their pitchfork? Stab somebody else next to them. Fair enough. Murphy's Law. So you have the exploding have and the imploding. I think it adds realism in both directions. Okay. So so from the perspective of a endless horde of peasants, I will grant you there is an infinite uh, possibility of things that can happen. Totally fair. Um, for the purposes of players rolling dice, how do you handle this problem where now everyone is incentivized to roll, particularly people who are, say, not necessarily versed in a certain skill? 
Because that same exploding very often means that your fighter suddenly has a thesis on, say, like the lore of draconic history. Sure. You know what? They ran into somebody at the last or, or they ran into somebody 10 bars ago who happened to go off and, and they ended up listening to them. I mean, it, this is this is a piece of information. And, that, and I think it still separates. I think it still separates. It and makes it more believable. Right. Because everyone can roll and have a 5 percent chance of getting a 20. But if the DC is 25 and you have no skill points in it, your chance significantly decreases. Because you'd need to be getting a 20 and a 5 then. Correct. As opposed to just a 20. Or say it's a DC 30 or like a 35 for an amazing lock. Right. If you have no ability to pick locks and you're trying to pick an amazing lock, like a 20 isn't going to do it. But everyone in the party would still have a 20% chance of doing it without the exploding dice. Only that person who has a significant bonus is really going to have a chance with exploding dice. Okay. Sure. That's fair. But I mean... At a certain point, isn't it also satisfying to know there's certain things in the world that are just beyond you at your current level? Like, especially when it comes to, say, like, eluding the guards. I mean, gosh, I can't tell you the last time we had a competent guard in a game. Like, they could reasonably threaten the party who was causing shenanigans. I don't think that has anything to do with exploding dice, though. No, it does Well, because it gets back to this overall idea of, like, variance, right? Because the, the problem is, like, if you have the tails and the, the out as far as these explosions do... We end up with a people die when they wouldn't otherwise. People succeed and pull off these crazy moves, like take out your your boss. But it's less often than 20 being an automatic success. So the question is, do you want your success at the end of all this like adventure and intrigue to come down to whether or not you can roll several 20s or because you've earned no it no because no, it's, also it's we've so created characters that have uh, much more variance in their stats mm. that the skill bonuses for the characters who are applicable to the skill situation have a significant chance of success mm. while those who do not have applicable skills, do not have a significant chance of success. It makes the party unify around who is good in a specific situation. So I will grant you that specialists obviously do have a much better time uh, kind of rising to the occasion presented by unique challenges. Totally fair. And that if you give them more of a budget, they can absolutely push those limits higher. Also totally fair. I think that, I maybe have remembered coming out on the losing end of these a few more times than others, and it's kind of stuck with me. I've become a jaded old man in my 20 years of gaming, Rob. What do you uh, mean the losing end? You roll a lot of ones? I think the ones that really get me are the the stat rolling. This is why I'm such a a cynic when it comes to rolling stats. So clarification, we're not talking about exploding dice anymore. uh, I'm, I'm walking it back to this general idea of just variance. In terms of character generation and the player experience, like how do you manage to keep it within a certain range, right? Because like if you look at any game, generally you start from a certain starting point, right? And the, this whole conversation is dancing around the idea of like, but what if you have three Monopoly pieces instead of one? So what I think my response to that is going to be that the more players you have at the table, mm. probably the better off you're going to be adhering closer mm. to the core assumptions of the particular system because you have more pieces that you need to uh balance together mm-hmm. so if you have a certain th- tolerance of variance that you need to rein in because you have more players sure and 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 a lot of this also comes down to your experience as a dm i mean mm-hmm. the more experience you have the easier <clears throat> you're gonna 
uh, be able to balance all of these, the more players that you can balance with more variance in the rules. There's, there's, I mean, obviously this doesn't come down to just one factor, mm. but if you have an experienced DM and a relatively small number of players at the table, and maybe those players are relatively experienced at working together. Can you give me a sense of what a relatively small amount of players is? Are we talking two? Are we talking four? So I would say anywhere two to four is a relatively small. You have a lot more leeway with the rules. Certainly less than five, though. You start getting up five, six, seven, eight. It becomes a lot more of a challenge. Mm. Um, And if you're less experienced as a DM, probably the further off of the sort of trod path of the core (laughs) assumptions of the rules, the more difficult it's going to be to get yourself back out of the weeds. But with the with the assumptions that you have a relatively high amount of experience with the rule system, if you have players a relatively small number of players who are maybe more experienced and more experienced playing with each other, mm-hmm. then the further you can vary from the core assumptions of the rule book mm-hmm. without running into game-breaking problems. Well, sure. And, and I'll absolutely grant you that this is tends to be like the trend of most gaming groups over time. Sure. Especially as you spend that much time in a game system, you, you kind of tend to gravitate towards the novelty of it. And and I think that is part of it, that that the stories you want to tell, the stories that were interesting to you when you first started using the core system, um, you've played them. Like you've you've used those story ideas. You need to go a little bit further afield for new ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the easy ways to start making those new ideas a playable sort of campaign is to manipulate the rules to more closely match the feel of the game that you were trying to put together. I think that's well said. So I think it all comes down to knowing the rules and knowing what the effect of breaking those rules is going to be. All right, let's go ahead and move on uh, to (laughs) our tricks of the trade segment. And I think for that, uh, well, let's, let's get the sound effect first. And for tricks of the trade, uh, let's just each have you give a short closing argument, uh, as it were, um, in favor or against uh, ignoring core assumptions of the game, and maybe two to three points about why you why you think that is your preference. You want to take those one? Oh. No, I'm I'm going to let you go first. Why? Okay. Why do we need to stick to the core assumptions? Uh, you know, actually, I'm going to throw out my entire argument here and go on a wild tear. Um, so I am. Let's restrict this to Pathfinder First Edition for the sake of making this coherent. Okay. Um, I did not originally have a gaming group when I first started. I was reading about D and D on message boards. And one of the things that really stood out to me was this idea of a tier system that is wizards, rogues, excuse me, wizards, druids, clerics are tier one, sorcerers are tier two, rogues are tier three. And so basically from a standpoint of how well can you bring force to bear on a game and really like take a main character kind of role, which is problematic, obviously for several reasons, but, I love the idea of chaining a point by budget to your tier so that let's say if you're playing a tier one character, you would have a 15 point by if you're tier two, you'd have say like 18 and so on. So that the characters that normally wouldn't have a chance to shine, especially say like your tier three and up, like your rogues, your dusk blades, your more obscure characters get that budget to actually enter that spotlight. And I, I love that idea as a way of, 
subsidizing some of the weaker classes. I think it could make some really interesting stories. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I know you've talked to me about this in the past, and I've just never. I don't want to say I don't. Blink I don't want to say I don't understand. <laughs> get the concepts of it. I just personally don't ever have any experience of playing a tier two or a tier three character where I felt like I was less powerful than any tier one character. It's my experiences, like a bard tier three character. I've always felt like my bards were the star of the game, regardless of whatever fireballs or wild shapes or animal companions things were slinging around me. That's right. I feel like the influence of a charismatic personality has a lot more to do with the story oh, yeah. than just the numbers on the page. That's fair. So I, I don't really personally understand the tier system just because I've never felt weak by any class. Interesting. I fully agree with that. I, I I don't buy your tears. Don't even notice it. Nope. I don't buy your tears. A fighter is fully equivalent to a wizard, Mister Wizard. Well, I mean, it obviously depends on the specific of the fighter, but why 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 do the players have to compete with each other? Like why why does it why does it have to be fighters versus wizards? Why can't it be what is the best way to combine our abilities to defeat whatever challenge that we are facing? Like. What if the most what if the most effective method of using that wizard and that fighter have nothing to do with the wizard using their abilities on their own? What if it's teaming up so that the wizard teleports or dimension doors the fighter into the exact right place to be the most effective? Like, why does it have to be competitive? That's the part that I don't understand. My favorite characters are the ones that make everyone else at the table more powerful. Because I'll tell you what, you get a shitload more appreciation from everybody at the table Mm -hmm. by casting, I don't know, say haste, Mm -hmm. than you do by throwing a fireball. Everybody at the table loves you when you cast haste. Absolutely. It's good to incentivize team play. Sure. So this, this tier system, I really don't understand. It makes no sense to me. I would be delighted to see what the comments look like on this, by the way, Rob. Please do share. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's out there. I've heard other people mention it before. Um, it's just not something I've ever experienced. Like, I've played a lot of characters. And I, frankly, I play almost exclusively tier two and tier three characters. All right. Hold on. Just just to kind of probe this for a moment. I don't think I've ever believe I've heard more stories like war stories of D than your wizards of thay red wizards of thay yes yeah. specifically well, group that was a like a three session game like yeah, because the game broke down no the, the crushing weight no it's on wizards no working in that, tandem that was <laughs> that was a campaign that was premised on the notion challenged to us by the dm who ran that game mm-hmm. that a party of wizards was a non-viable party and so we took up that challenge mm-hmm. created three a party of three wizards Red Wizards of Thay. And with that party, we broke the DM. So but quite, that, quite literally. But but yeah. that was a very specific challenge thrown down. So that was so, never a game intended to last. Just one follow-up question for this. Do you think you would have been able to uh what did what did you describe it as break the DM with three fighters? I think that if any DM levels a challenge against Nate, Chris, and myself that something cannot be done, we will break the DM. We will find a way to make it work. And and the whole reason is, is because all we did was find the most effective way to work together as a unit. 
Right. As a team. It had really, it could have been any characters, any class that he chose. We still would have found a way to say, how can we work together as a team so effectively that we disprove his point? So maybe it ends up being fighters. And all of a sudden, all three of us have invested the ranks into use magic device so that three fighters end up looking a whole lot more like three something else. I mean, it it comes down to every character class is playable. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly. Well, and, and if you want to talk about fighters, talk about the uh, paired opportunist chain that we built. Like <laughs> kind of by accident. Kind actually. of by accident. <laughs> but you put three fighters with those feats and all of a sudden monsters get one turn and then we critical them for until they're dead. Absolutely. I do love this story. This does seem like a delightfully hijinky kind of build. Um, please put some kind of link description together for it, though. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to sit there and describe the. Oh, just listen to previous game. episodes. We've <laughs> talked we've talked about that particular game numerous times on this show. Oh, good. Okay. All right, Nate, uh, your, your closing argument. Okay, so my closing argument is basically that run the game in the way that suits the story you were trying to tell. Mm. If you are less experienced, you might want to follow it a little bit closer. But as soon as you know what is going on, as soon as you can figure out how to balance all of the different factors, do not limit yourself to the core assumptions of any game system. It is there for you to make of it what you want to make. Do not feel like those are hard, unbreakable lines. Yeah, I That's a good sentiment. It actually, I think, mirrors very closely to what Monty Cook said when he was on the show. He made a mention of, yes, we have created these rules, we have created these settings, but as soon as you buy it, they're no longer our rules. They're no longer our stories. They belong to you, and you are probably going to do something better with them than we ever imagined. So I think that's right along those lines. Make it your own. Make your make- Well, and when you get to that point, epic stories require epic abilities. And so do whatever you need to do to provide epic enough abilities to your players that they can overcome truly epic challenges. I will throw on one one polite moment of encouragement here and say that rather than handing those kinds of abilities to your players through extra say like stats or money i would encourage your players to not encourage your players but reward them for when they come up with those outside of the box solutions and you know when it happens it comes up halfway through the session when suddenly the plan that you had just goes out the window take those moments and embrace them as them discovering that kind of moment of genius or moment of triumph because that is the kind of victory that i really live for and i I think that that is my favorite part of the game i i do love those moments you're right like those Mm -hmm. those are the moments of story uh when something unexpected happens and it ends up being incredible Uh, but i will i would just say i think that that can happen in any assumption of of any game and sometimes it takes resources. You have an idea, but you don't quite have enough money to make it work. A little more money that you can burn on a once a one-off sort of situation can can lend a lot of delight and interest to a game. I think it's why one of Nate's favorite items is the 
robe of useful items. The robe of useful items is fucking incredible. Yeah. It, to be fair, Nate, I have seen you bring more scrolls to bear on encounters than anyone else in my life. It, it is sometimes genuinely inspiring. Sometimes the right answer is a scroll. <laughs> and if you are too poor to afford a good collection of scrolls, you're not going to have the spell you need for that one particular incident. Well, thank you guys for being on today. Uh, we will all see you next time, Cyclothids, until our next session. Have a good week and farewell.